0: Welcome to the podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Tappenden. I'm Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition and Professor and Head of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm pleased today for my guest, who is Dr. Jeffrey Mechanic, who's an endocrinologist and director of metabolic support at the Mount Sinai Hospital, and he's here to discuss his recent publication titled Clinical Nutrition Research and the COVID-19 Pandemic, a scoping review of the ASPID COVID-19 Task Force on Nutrition Research. Welcome, Dr. Mechanic. Thanks, Kelly. So I was very pleased to see that a task force was formed to address this issue and really give us some COVID-19 specific issues based on the published literature to date, as opposed to having us just rely on critical care guidelines and things that existed, albeit important. Tell us when this committee or task force was put together and what your specific charge was.
1: Right. So the way this started was... uh... Somewhere around spring, right after the uh, annual meetings, the Aspen annual meetings, I um, got an email from uh, the president and reflecting the board, the Aspen board, that there was a real interest to do some type of a focused uh, either position paper, or review paper, but some type of white paper on COVID nineteen and nutrition. Now remember, this is a little bit after here at Mount Sinai, in New York, we had suffered through. The brunt of the first wave but the rest of the country was really starting to encounter and engage that first wave it was really getting into a critical process and also i think it was a very enlightened question because whereas there was uh, a lot of emphasis on do you use steroids do you use remdesivir do you use hydroxychloroquine all of those issues at the beginning as you can recall from COVID, there was really little, there was short shrift given to nutrition. And in fact, everybody was applying the same type of paradigms of care for nutrition during this COVID pandemic, whether it was in the hospital, inpatient, or whether it was home TPN or home enterals, adults, children. And we were really in, in some type of intellectual void. So I think it was an enlightened question to get started and do something. That's really how it got started. And then from there, we formulated a strategy.
0: All right. Now, your strategy certainly was comprehensive in that you did a scoping review with various defined aspects in which you went to the literature. Can you tell us a bit about that methodology?
1: Yeah. So I actually remember that very clearly because originally I was thinking, well, we clearly don't have enough evidence for a guideline. And um, a review, there were already a lot of reviews. There were a lot of impressionistic, interpretive, knee-jerk reviews in nutrition that, in my view, may, may have even been contaminating the literature and really weren't providing good direction. So I was thinking more of a systematic review, but then started doing a little bit of research on these types of reviews and white papers and really looking at teasing apart the difference between a scoping review and a systematic review. And sort of the way that I think when I start to create the organization or the infrastructure for a project, I really wanted to understand the entire layout of how these white papers fit. And there's something called a knowledge translation platform, where you first do an environmental scan, uh, which is what you were alluding to. You, You know that there's a problem of COVID and nutrition. The next step is actually this broad stroke, which is a scoping review, to see what is out there. And in order to see what's out there, there's actually a very formal way to do it uh, in terms of the scoping review and methodology. Uh, Subsequent to that, you refine that information into more focused PICO questions, which I'll speak about in a second, And that's your systematic review. Then that leads into the clinical practice guidelines, which then leads into implementation strategies, validation, education, and you repeat the cycle as you evolve. And and Kelly, the way this is oriented is really to address gaps. And if you read the paper, we actually originally had a lot more text on the gaps, but uh, we really needed to focus on the results and we cut a lot of it out but we wanted to focus on research gaps. And research gaps are scientific questions that don't yet have answers. Also, there are knowledge gaps. Knowledge gaps are when you have the answers, but there's a non-uniform distribution among users, whether they're healthcare professionals or policymakers, hospital administrators, etc so a good example of that might be that um here at mount sinai early on in the pandemic we were already gaining uh, knowledge experience and empirical evidence about the use of steroids uh, early on and also maybe even the uh, connection with obesity and the connection with how to manage diabetes and our experience with parenteral nutrition but maybe in another part of the country that it wasn't yet afflicted with the full force the pandemic, they weren't aware of that information. That's a knowledge gap. And then a practice gap is where you actually have that knowledge, but you haven't implemented it yet. Uh, Scoping reviews address those research and knowledge gaps. Systematic reviews identify the practice gaps, and then the guidelines close the practice gaps. Later on, educational efforts can close uh, some of those knowledge gaps as well. So it was within that framework that we embarked on developing a very formal approach to a scoping review. And in fact, Kelly, that's where I went back to leadership at Aspen saying, look, if you really want this done the right way, these are the resources. And Aspen really stepped up. We had Liam McKeever for our methodologist. We had a full panel, a broad group of authors and reviewers. Uh, We had conference calls probably three or four every week. Over the next uh, three or four months, I was criticized because we had a very, very fast timeline. Those of you who were taking care of COVID know how fast this was evolving, and the pressure was really on to get this done, not two years or one year or two and a half years, as I know you're familiar with um, as editor, but I needed this done in three to four months and and have it in your hands, and uh, everybody stepped up and just did a wonderful job.
0: I was really impressed with how quickly, how comprehensive it was, but how quickly you really were able to implement this. Um, and I have had the pleasure of working with Liam McKeever and he is, he is a go-getter. Amazing, <laughs> yeah. amazing. I can see that he would have been critical to helping this come up. Okay, so thank you for that clear methodology. That framework is lovely. Tell us what you, you then found. I know you found over 2,300 citations in the literature.
1: Right, right. So, what are the numbers? Twenty-three hundred one citations imported. Four hundred and thirty-nine articles were fully abstracted. And again, this is all based on a methodology that Liam set forth. I mean, he tutored us, and we went through. We had to do dry runs. Uh, we in, in being able to review these abstracts and curate them. We ended up with twenty three different main topics, and all of this is in the abstract. Uh, 24 article types uh, across 61 countries, and 51 different specialties. So a lot of information that we then needed to go through. So we knew what point A was. Point A was this vast literature of a lot of information, but we didn't know what the quality of the information was, and whether it really was the kind of information one could use to answer clinically relevant questions. So point B was going to be, if we had those questions, do we have the answers, right? Those would be the research gaps. And what we decided is we wanted point B to look like a heat map so that the average reader of JPEN could then look at that heat map and thank you for the color. My pleasure. Uh, that they could look at the heat map and then see exactly where those research gaps are being closed and where they're not being closed. And actually, we were able to create heat maps for knowledge gaps. But the key part of this was concurrent with reviewing the data, was formulating relevant PICO questions, population intervention, comparative group outcomes, and then time, a time course. And we went back and forth. Uh, the way we did it also, if, if those of you listening and have an interest, is we split all the authors into three platoons or teams, and um, those teams correlated to three different stages of COVID. So at the time, we were really dealing with one stage, that acute stage in the hospital, but we knew that this was going to unwind at some point.
0: We knew
1: that it was gonna be very important to identify, have information about risk for severe COVID. And that would be the pre-COVID stage. For instance, 83% of patients with severe COVID in the ICU had hypertension. Hypertension was a driver. Obesity was a driver. Diabetes was a driver, actually insulin resistance, prior cardiovascular disease. Age, early on age over 85, later on it was over 65. Uh, So there were these primary drivers in that pre-COVID stage that if you could lock into that and, and have some type of metabolic nutritional intervention program with a proper infrastructure, you know, so you're addressing social determinants of disease, biological determinants of disease, you can really affect the curve, you could flatten the curve. Then stage two was acute, and we knew whether it was prescient or not, to know, I don't think it was really rocket science. We knew that there was going to be a post-COVID syndrome, just like there are post-viral syndromes uh, otherwise. And stage three was post-COVID. There was a little bit of reticence about going through it because look, how much data could there be early on on a post-COVID syndrome? But we could extrapolate from other data And as long as we were disciplined in the way we looked at the literature, we would be able to capture that. And indeed, we could. So we had three platoons that diligently looked at pre-acute and post-or chronic COVID. So patients in the hospital that don't come off the vent, they become chronically, critically ill. That's chronic or or post-COVID, really. We were already seeing the encephalopathy, the dis-executive function. So could a wasting syndrome be part of it? Is there a role for a different kind of nutritional screening, a different nutritional risk assessment? Is there a different uh, physiology for micronutrients? There was already an emerging literature on vitamin D, for instance, which is still controversial and unsettled because we don't have good interventional studies. So that was part of the logistics in putting this together and just sort of working through it with all these uh, conference calls. Ultimately, we were able to have those uh, PICO questions, the heat maps, draw the conclusions. Unfortunately, what we found, uh, no surprise, is that virtually all the PICO questions were unanswered, that we had research gaps across the board. But we were able, based on the relative amount of information, we were able to highlight problems with infrastructure, Problems of a dearth of evidence for breastfeeding, for instance, in the pediatric population, cardiometabolic disease, and uh, food security or insecurity was another main issue. We also had uh, someone on the writing committee from the public domain uh, to review this, and we had other reviewers. So this was really vetted along many dimensions.
0: So in your opinion, what do you see then as priorities based on the made knowledge gaps.
1: Right. So ultimately what we did is we were able to pinpoint certain aspects that would be worthy not of broad PICO questions, but now next steps of focused PICO questions. So now rewrite the PICO questions and focus nutritional screening and risk assessment. Focus on pediatrics, on maternal and fetal health, breastfeeding. Focus on cardiometabolic risk factors, uh, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, prior cardiovascular disease. Uh, The other aspect was home care. To really be ready for home parenteral nutrition, home enteral nutrition. How do you follow up with these patients, uh, particularly with a lot of the distancing? You know, I'll, I'll give you an example to those listening. As far as infrastructure goes, many of you recall, there was a lot of redeployment of uh, healthcare professionals in hospitals, and hospitals really needed to come up with infrastructure on supplies. Here at Mount Sinai, for instance, for a period of time, there was a shortage of uh, enteral pumps. And so how do you do it? You have to shift over to some bolus beads. Well, how do you do that when you have to synchronize with glycemic control and you don't want to be on an insulin trip because you don't want to expose your colleagues to going in and checking sugars every hour uh, into someone who's on COVID isolation. So these are all policy and infrastructural issues. And that's what we were identifying from the terrain. The next step, Kelly, is to have more focused PICO questions. And now a systematic review, particularly now with a more robust uh, evidence base in the literature.
0: And have you seen any of those systematic reviews uh, be initiated or, or even you know starting to be in pre-press?
1: So you will find even some scoping reviews and you'll find some systematic reviews, but I don't think they're at the level that we need to be able to find The practice gaps, because that ultimately is the deliverable of a systematic review to find these relevant practice gaps, which then are addressed in the clinical practice guidelines. Uh, The answer is no. The short answer is no. So far, I haven't seen a uh, very large systematic review that covers the relevant PICO questions, although I know there have been some very fine attempts uh, out there in the literature. Uh, But that would be the next step. And then the step afterwards would be a clinical practice guideline. It would require a commitment, uh, not only by maybe one large uh, nutrition-related society, but even a consortium of societies uh, that are stakeholders within the nutrition space to be able to pull all the resources together. So that would be not only MDs, DOs, RDs, but also PhDs, nurses, policymakers, administrators. That would be my vision of how this would be done appropriately.
0: Sure, that really sounds very good. Have you made those recommendations to the Aspen board? Is there a proposal or, or might you make a proposal to uh, embark on this?
1: So um, I've had discussions with uh, our CEO, with, with Wanda, uh, about this knowledge translation platform. Uh, it's something that is going to need to be looked at carefully. It'll need to be looked at carefully within the scope of Aspen in general. My own personal belief is that we shouldn't be berry picking white papers. We we should we shouldn't be saying, oh, let's do a clinical practice guideline on this. Or let's do a scoping review on that, that that ideally. And this does require infrastructure. There should be a platform where knowledge is translated along this natural evolution from an environmental scan scoping review systematic review clinical practice guideline implementation validation education and then to adapt but um, rightly so wanda had said look not every topic needs to go through the entire uh sequence there are some topics where just a one and done is fine there are other topics where you really need a more uh, intensive effort
0: yeah, absolutely. I think that that just the logistics around that are a very big issue, right? Well, let me thank you on behalf of all Aspen members and, and readers of JPEN for the important leadership that you've had in this area. It's simply outstanding.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: For our our listeners, please do go to the January 2021 issue of JPEN and read uh, the paper by Dr. McCannick and his colleagues that we just discussed, entitled Clinical Nutrition Research and the COVID 19 Pandemic, a scoping review of the Aspen COVID 19 Task Force on Nutrition Research.